The New Testament reading is from Colossians chapter 2. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you look at your bulletin coming in on the first page, it says the second Sunday of Easter, and that's because the Easter season actually begins on Easter and runs until Pentecost and then kind of transitions into what the church has traditionally called ordinary time. And by that, it's meant to convey this pattern by which Easter becomes the foundation for ordinary life, for how we go about living in the other six days of the week, of the other 364 days of the year. And so I thought it would be appropriate to take a couple of weeks at least to think through the implications uh, more deeply of Easter rather than just reflecting on the event. But what does this mean to us in our daily lives? And so we're going to do two weeks here in this particular passage and then we'll transition into a spring series, which I'm sure that you're going to love. Once I decide what it is, um, it's going to be great. Well, I was, sometimes you kind of are searching for illustrations. How do you make this, you know, uh, point or this sermon relevant to daily life? And then sometimes uh, one just falls into your lap. And we went to see the new Avengers Endgame yesterday. And you know, at the very end when Thanos is... uh, I'm joking. Did you know someone got beat up for uh, sharing spoilers at a theater this week in front of, uh, in front of Avengers? So I want to survive today. Um, so I'm not going to do Avengers, but the summer blockbusters can often surprise us um, with their kind of cultural, social commentary and their depth. And in X-Men 2, this is going way back, so uh, no spoiler alerts at all. If you haven't seen it, too bad. Uh, You'll now know some of what happens. Um, But in between kind of the CGI and the explosions uh, that are typical of these summer movies, you see a glimpse of both Professor X, Charles Xavier, as well as um, Magneto, both reading uh, the novel The Once and Future King. And in that story, King Arthur is using the might of the crown to try and knit medieval England back together and to make it a place of justice and peace. 
that's governed by those things rather than just brute force. But the conflict, the conceit of the movie is that author, or in this case Xavier, has to use brute force in order to make the kingdom a kingdom of peace and a kingdom governed by justice. So it's basically the problem, the quandary of the morality of superior firepower. And superheroes, superhero movies traffic in this sort of moral conflict, this quandary. What happens when someone has great power and is also immoral? Or what if someone has great power and they're not immoral, but the means that they use to get to an ostensibly justifiable end happen to be decided only by them and that their cost-benefit analysis might not jive so much with someone else. What happens? Well, the X-Men, of course, keep order and justice in place by what? By force, by having superior firepower. And it's actually Magneto who's suspicious of this, believing that even the great Charles Xavier is corruptible and that his upholding justice through the X-Men, through power, will eventually collapse in on itself, just as authors did in Once and Future King. Now, Colossians is probably my favorite of the Pauline epistles, the letters that, that Paul wrote, because it's full of dealing with these sort of problems and reflecting upon the cross and the resurrection as an answer. It's full of narrating a kingdom that's sort of upside down, the water running uphill of Easter. And he captures the sort of cosmic predicament and how it's only God on a cross. It's only a crucified, executed God that can answer this moral predicament, who can sort of split the atom and come up with a, a third way that relativizes this problem. Now, if you have sort of a cultural commentary background to the Bible, you can read about how Jesus' entry into Jerusalem upends a lot of the military symbolatry that was common in the ancient world. They knew how to celebrate a military triumph of victory. And what would happen is nations like Rome or Babylon would take over another nation, and then they would parade the defeated army down the center of the home city, publicly shaming them. We have defeated these people, your people that you sent to fight us. Look at them now. And at the very end, what would happen is they would bring the defeated king down the street to close out this parade, and then they would publicly execute him. So it's this psychological warfare. And when the Romans executed Jesus, guess what they were doing? What was in their minds? It was playing by this script of psychological warfare, more or less. Because what they're saying about Jesus is that he's not simply a defeated king of a once powerful military kingdom. He's a pretend king of a fake kingdom. And we've defeated him. These rulers and authorities that Paul talks about are trying to publicly shame Jesus and all who might come to follow him. 
They're celebrating a public triumph over him. But what Paul is saying here is, you know, blink, rub your eyes, reflect again, because that's not what is going on. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. It's exactly inverted from what you would think and what you might see. That reality is deeper than what you can perceive and deeper than what just happened. The powers had done their absolute worst to Jesus, crucifying him on these trumped-up charges of blasphemy and rebellion against the empire, but that they overreached. Now, he was guilty neither of blasphemy nor leading a rebellion, and yet the Roman authorities and the religious elites, they saw something that maybe you and I don't see. They saw something significant about Jesus that meant their kingdom is coming to an end and that the way that the religious leaders had been orchestrating religious authority is coming to an end. They actually saw the truth, that the charges themselves were trumped up, but it pointed to something that Jesus was doing that was, in fact, true, because he most certainly was, you see, a threat. He didn't come simply to provide a a better spiritual pathway for us to get to God. He didn't come just to lay out a better personal spirituality. You don't get crucified for that. He was most certainly challenging, and this is all through Colossians if you want to read it, the gods of empire. And he was starting not a rebellion merely against the state, but he was starting a cosmic insurrection that called into question the authority of all states and all empires. Because coming as Jesus did, riding this donkey down the street of Jer- in Jer- Jerusalem, Coming in that way, what he's saying is that he is the rightful king. When King Arthur pulls Excalibur out of the stone, it's not because he's stronger than everyone else. It's not because he's the most powerful or he's won the most military battles. That Therefore, he's earned the right to pull out and wield Excalibur. It's because instead he is the anointed one. It's like Thor's hammer. You can only pick it up if you are worthy. And Arthur was the only one worthy to pull the sword out. He's the true king. And not only does this sort of set the the schema for a lot of our most cherished film narrative tropes about the underdog, the peasant, the slave rising, you know, from the margins to unmask evil, to overthrow oppressive regimes. Paul is saying that this is more than just a narrative trope. It's more than just an interesting, inspiring story. And it's more than just an abstract moral or cosmic victory. But that he's putting all regimes, all injustice, all people who oppress others on notice that your reign has a a time limit. All of these social arrangements whereby people lift themselves up and push others down, 
they're on notice that this no longer works in the ultimate world, in the real world. It may work for a time in the world that you see, but something else is going on. And listen, here's the challenge for all of us, because we'll talk about this a little bit more next week, but if you are in him, that's the language that Paul uses here, in Christ, then his victory is your victory, but also his way to victory, his path to resurrection is through the cross, and that is your path and mine as well. You see, he says, first of all, that Jesus, in going to the cross, canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. Do you see what what he's doing here? He's saying that if you're in him, then you are as much a criminal standing in front of Pilate, standing in front of the religious authorities, as Jesus was. You are condemned by the force of empire and religious authority because why? You are following a king that challenges both of them. But what Jesus has done is he has taken away that condemnation, nailing it to the cross. And there's this deeper connection that's going on here, talking about this legal indebtedness that I don't have time to fully uh, exegete because hopefully this will be over in 20 or 25 minutes, and this would take hours. But in short strokes and broad strokes, I guess, uh, in the Old Testament, there's this fairly developed legal and moral code that Paul is also rendering as in some way, no longer applicable. Or at least, it is no longer the means that you thought it was. And this legal sort of uh, tradition is what's known as the Jewish law or Torah. But also added to that is this vast rabbinic tradition that greatly expands it and has just hundreds and hundreds of laws upon laws. And this is a very crude description, I admit, but essentially the mentality that arose up around that at least was that to follow this law, Torah and the rabbinic tradition, to follow these things well was what made you in good standing vis-a-vis the law. That's what included you in this kingdom that God is creating and what kept you in that kingdom. And as this written and this oral tradition expanded, these sectarian entities began to take hold of it and began to use it to assign human value and began to create these in and out scenarios that we are following the law. We follow all of the law and you don't. We are clean and you are unclean based upon these laws. And these are the religious authorities, these sectarian entities, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, that Jesus constantly gets in trouble with. And if we are in him, then reason it out that those sort of analogs today, those kind of churches, religious authorities, wielding that kind of power, if you are in him, then you should be getting in trouble with them. So your pastor gives you permission to go and get in trouble this week. Get in trouble with 
other pastors, or me, if you find me wrong. (laughs) Hopefully not. Now, some of this, this law, Torah, rabbinic tradition, Pharisees, seems kind of distant and very Jewish. It's ancient. But is it ancient history? Because, as I've alluded to, we've seen this proliferation of these communities of belonging in our day based upon spiritual, moral, religious, political, cultural merit. Do you hit home runs in all of these categories? Then you can be one of us, and we are against those people over there. Paul is saying here that in that day and our day, that Jesus is taking all of the rules that we use to lift ourselves up and all of the rules that we use to put others down and to create communities based upon that pressure. That he's taking all of it to the cross. All of the ways that we assumed to police the boundaries of religious community and political communities. All the ways that you reflect upon those and say, I'm one of the in. I'm one of the good people. And he does with our rules, exactly what he did with the Pharisees' rules. He took them to the cross and said that their power dies here with him at the cross, that these rules no longer have power over you to dictate your identity, to dictate your merit, to dictate your worthiness because they're dead. And maybe, friends, if we're not a little bit shocked or offended, maybe we're not seeing Jesus as clearly as the Pharisees saw him because they saw their kingdom coming to an end. And so they colluded with the Romans to have him killed. All of the ways that you've used your perceived spiritual, moral, political, cultural merit to separate yourself from others, to feel good about yourself, these things, friends, they aren't just unfortunate vices. They aren't just idiosyncrasies. They deserve a death sentence. And that should worry us. That should offend us. That's the consequence of Jesus dying and rising again. And those that still live according to those kind of systems live that way in an Easter world. They're living in a regime that's opposed to Christ's victory. You see? Now, there's the stick, and it's quite a massive stick, but I think there's a carrot as well, or kind of law performance change because grace. Because what happened as well is that he disarmed the powers and authorities on your behalf. He made a public spectacle of all the ways that you may have thought is the pathway to God. If I can perform this way, if I can do this better, if I can be more consistent. And he triumphs over all of that as well. Triumphs over your demerits by the cross. Because in his cross, it's not only the law, but it's 
everything that makes a claim upon your life and says, serve it. And Jesus has overcome that. Everything, friends, that would exclude you from the love of God has been crucified. It has been killed. Jesus defeated it so that you can be included forever. And so I did it carrot to stick, but it's really the reverse. That you have been included, therefore don't submit yourself any longer to these communities of rules-based merit. Because you are included, because you have and possess his love, don't live by these rules or force anyone else to as well. And that's what Paul gets into in the meat of this verse, which we'll look at next week. But you, because of Easter, are living in a whole new regime. And that's kind of good because the old one wasn't working (laughs) that well anyway. Being a moral bean counter is not a fun way to live. It's a crummy way to live. Constantly monitoring our performance as well as all of our friends' performance is exhausting. It's like the marathon runner who is constantly checking her watch at every quarter mile, but not only checking hers, but everyone else's, because it's not just I'm racing against the finish line, but I'm racing against everyone else. And it's exhausting because this race never ends. You see, it's not just 26 miles, but you keep going until you die. And the cross, the resurrection, says that God is not out to get you if you don't hit your pace, if you miss your quarter mile mark, but instead, stop running. Stop checking your watch. Stop looking at the time. And just let God love you as you are in the state you're in right now not who you want to be. That's not who God loves. God loves you. And so stop running. And also, a minor life hack or pro tip, those people who are constantly checking their watch, who use their assumed performance for dominance, for control, to hurt, to look down upon us or upon you, Pity is more appropriate than anger towards that person, even if they've hurt you, because you see, they're still running this race that never ends, that race that's not to the finish line for an award, but it's the finish line that is coterminous with the grave. They're monitoring your performance because they're not really sure if they're keeping up, and they can never rest And that's what leads them to nitpick you. It's tiring and it's lonely to live that way. And so you don't have to seek or wish revenge upon that person because living in that world, you see, is punishment enough. It's a crummy way to live. And it's a world that many of us, even though We're here every Sunday, even though we say we believe all of these things, some of us are still stuck in that world. And all of us are stuck in that world in little pieces. And it's why we brood over negative comments that people make. It's why we brood over someone else's Facebook profile that's so much more beautiful and lovely than ours is. 
It's why we're always assessing how we're doing. So busy bettering ourselves. So busy working our plan, doing our Bible study, studying our theology, doing our disciplines in such a way that even our devotional life can become very self, very individually focused, disconnected from that larger drama that we've been talking about of Easter. We start doing these Jesus-y things and we miss Jesus because we made him about us and we've made it about checking our watch and trying to keep up. We miss the reverse symbolism of Good Friday and Easter. You see, Magneto becomes a criminal to thwart the contradiction of Xavier using power to maintain peace. And he becomes corrupt himself, Magneto does. But here in Colossians, you see, we have a criminal allowing the empire, the religious, and its religious cohorts to fall upon him in order to undermine their assumptions, undermine their reality, undermine the assumptions that wealth and power and achievement gives you control in this world and that you should hold on to it because that's where security is. That those of us who are wealthy and powerful and culturally approved are in charge. But you see, instead of establishing a kingdom that is protected by superior power, firepower through taking, through coercion, through enforcement, Jesus lays down his life. And he says, all who come after me will do the same. And so his power is unlike Magneto. It's unlike Arthur. It's unlike Nebuchadnezzar or Caesar. Jesus came to raise up a people, and that is you, if you're a part of this church or another, who would die. Not simply to have a better devotional life, not simply to belong to more theologically correct and purified churches, but to create communities of belonging, working out this larger story that brings new life in Jesus to individuals, but also to the communities that they inhabit. These communities of belonging challenge, therefore, the unimpeachable truths that we take for granted, whether they are political or whether they're religious. And it concerns itself with concentrations of power and of net worth that presume this permanent underclass to serve them and to make their lifestyle comfortable. That is mine and yours. And maybe some of these things seem abstract, but maybe it's because we don't talk about them. Maybe it's because most of us are reading this script from the perspective of privilege. The story, friends, is not only political. The story is not only about social justice. That would be to make a mistake in the other direction. But it can't be merely personal to the exclusion of these larger things that, by the way, got Jesus killed. As Jesus rose again, you see, as he ultimately ascended, leaving 
the world again to us. He left behind what? He left behind these little communities, these communities of open service to the world, even when that service undermined their own standing and put them at threat of death, which it often did. That was the story of the disciples that he left behind and many of the churches that sprung up to take up their cause, that they served the world to the cost of their own lives. But they were willing, friends, grace, carrot, because they met a God who made room for them in his kingdom. And he told them, you don't have to run anymore. Because on Good Friday and on Easter, he had included them. And nothing and no one could ever exclude them again. And they wanted to give that away. And so they banded together to bring that message, to bring that justice to bear upon the neighborhoods and the kingdoms that they lived in, even when it cost them their lives. Let's pray. Father, we do proclaim that Jesus Christ is our resurrection, and I pray that that would mean something. It would mean something specific, and that even though it's fearsome to pray like this, that it would mean something costly, that each of us would look at our lives, at our possessions, at our money, and ask whether or not our allegiance to the one who is crucified cost us, that it leads us to sacrifice something tangible that pinches and hurts and constricts our lifestyle. Lord, let us do that, not because of compulsion or guilt, but because you have done that for us, that you have extended yourself to give us grace at the cost of your son's own life. And I pray that we would live out this week in light of that. And we pray in his name. Amen.